Well, this time the kids can be dismissed. By the way, uh, appreciate all of the uh, children's workers. Um, I am really glad they scheduled this service. They did not have the kids right before me because that's a hard act to follow. I mean, they've uh, got some instruments up here. We have, at the end of our service today, uh, we're going to have what we're calling our opportunity fair in the connection point. And so we have all kinds of ministry opportunities that we want to uh, encourage you to consider and maybe sign up for. If you're already doing some things, there are some ministry opportunities like being a greeter that you can do that once or twice a year, but just opportunities for people to be involved. Uh, But I was thinking about our service opportunity fair. I was thinking about our future musicians down here, a variety of instruments. And anyway, just um, just a blessing to have our kids with us this morning. And Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20 is going to be our text this morning. I've titled the the sermon this morning, Broken Chains, Dead Pigs, and New Life. As we think about our text, our text talks about all three of these, chains that are cast away, pigs that are floating in the sea, and new life. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus seeks to do for us. Before we look at our passage this morning, two weeks ago we reflected on Mark chapter 4, the last part of that chapter. And in that, we saw a violent storm that had come upon Jesus and his disciples. This storm was blowing and the disciples were terrified. They were convinced that they were going to die. They had never seen a storm like this. And yet, as they wake Jesus up, Jesus gets up, he speaks to the storm, and the storm silences. It is immediately silent, and it, and it, and it brings great fear upon the disciples. They were certainly afraid of the storm that was outside, but now they've realized that God is in the boat with them. And that really scared them. It really scared them, but they also know that in that act, God was demonstrating that he does care for them. And we spent time talking about how God settles storms and and things that go on on the outside. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage. We're going to look at a passage about about another storm. And it's a storm not in the sky, but a storm that's inside of a man. An internal storm that is destroying a life and impacting a community. Before we look at our text, I want us to consider some of the storms that sometimes, or maybe often, uh, rage within us. We think about the internal struggles that seem to wage war within you. Battles between doing what you know is right and doing what you feel justified to do. The battle that sometimes goes on inside of you with your emotions a battle of emotions, a battle of, of inner demons, a battle of passions, of loneliness, battles of grief and sorrow, battles that rage in us sometimes of anger and resentment, battles of discouragement and depression. These battles that rage in us, and as bad as summer thunderstorms can be and as bad as winter ice storms can be, these storms are often incomparable to those. These can seem incomparable because there's no place to go. I can't go to the safety of my basement or warm up next to the comfort of a fireplace. Those storms that rage within us are storms that are real. And we're going to look this morning at a passage of a man who a storm was raging in him. And we're going to see some things about Jesus, about his grace about our ability, and I trust this will be a help to you this morning. 
what I want to convince you of this morning is that and control us. But Jesus cares. He cares and he has authority to settle storms, to bring us peace, and to use us in the lives of others. But let's look at our text. Mark chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, And they, this is the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered into the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And herdsmen, and the herdsmen went and they fled and they told in the city and the country and the people came to see what it was that had happened and when they came to jesus and saw the demon possessed man the one who had been that had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid we'll look at the rest of this passage in just a few moments but as we look at this passage we see the disciples they've made their way across the sea of galilee they have been on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and now they're on the Gentile side. They have made this journey, and as we're going to look at this passage, this whole journey seems to be about this encounter, because all three of uh, the Gospels that record this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say they got in the boat, they came over, this happened, they got in the boat, and went back. It all seems to be about this event. And when they get off the boat, they encounter this man with a storm raging inside of him. And we are told that this man is, has an unclean spirit, that he is demon-possessed, that he's living in a cemetery, he's living in a region surrounded with all these caves that people would use as, as tombs. The passage in verse 4, look at what verse 4 tells us. And it says, he had often been bound with chains. And been bound with shackles and chains. So oftentimes this, they, would, they would try to protect this guy, probably from himself, but also from them. And he's, he's a madman running throughout the countryside. He's howling at the moon day and night, living in the tombs. He's got broken shackles. He's got open cuts on him that he's been cutting himself. This, guy is, is, this guy's a mess. And the people have tried to help him. And it says in verse 3, no one could bind him anymore. 
So not only are things bad, but it seems they're getting worse. They used to be able to contain this guy, but no longer. Things are getting worse. He's being a threat to others. He's a threat to himself. It's, it's interesting as he's this, this crazed state that he is in, he's crying out with a loud voice uncontrollably. I find it interesting, too, that it describes himself, he's cutting himself. We see that even today. People cutting themselves, life out of control and chaos, and cutting themselves to find some kind of momentary relief or some sort of control. And we see this man, just, just his life absolutely being destroyed. And if we saw someone like this in Crawfordsville, we would be concluding, this guy's out of his mind. He has some kind of mental illness. We would do what they did. We would seek to institutionalize him, put him somewhere so he's not a threat to us and he's not a threat to himself. But when Jesus lands, it says in verse 6, it says when Jesus lands, verse 6 says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And I, I think about this verse, and imagine being one of, the, one of the disciples. So you've just been through a long night. There's been a storm you thought you were going to die in, and then Jesus speaks to the storm, he calms it, and then you're like really afraid because you're like, man, this is blowing my mind. And you're getting off this boat, your land, your feet are on solid ground, and you're like, ah. Oh. Finally, I mean, your clothes are soaking and you're probably cold, but you're off and then you're like, oh, finally. And then you see this crazy guy running up to Jesus. I mean, imagine he's got some chains hanging from him and uh, he's screaming out with his really loud voice. He's bleeding from these open wounds on him. I, mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm with one of the disciples, I'm saying, hey, let's get back in the boat and get out of here. I mean, I don't know what this is all about. Or, or if Jesus is up front, I'm, kind of, I'm going to squeeze behind Jesus. Jesus, this is yours. This is, I don't know what this is all about. But, but as a disciple, being ter- terrified about what is going on, and then hearing this guy crying out and saying, saying um, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Thinking, how does this guy know Jesus? I mean, this is the other side of the sea. I mean, how do they know, how does this guy know it's Jesus? And how does he know what we just realized? That he's the son of the most high God. Who, who is this guy? What is, what is this all about? And yet, as then Jesus, as we see Jesus enter, engaging with the man in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, we, well, we see this man, he says to him, the man says to Jesus, he identifies him, and he says to Jesus, I adjure you, do not torment me. I think as a disciple, you're also thinking, why would he think he's going to torment me? That's not what Jesus does. That's not, I mean, we haven't seen Jesus treat anybody like this. And why is this guy from across the sea all worried about Jesus tormenting him? Then we get to verse 8, and we're, we learn some light is shed on this. When he says to the man, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And then we get it. We're like, oh, okay, this, this isn't this guy. This guy's not just crazy. This guy's got some spiritual, spirit, some serious spiritual warfare going on inside of him. And when Jesus addresses the man, he says, what is your name? And he says his name is Legion. It's interesting because that would have been resonating likely with the disciples and then some of the other people around hearing that because in that context, the, the Romans were in charge of 
Jerusalem and Israel and all those areas. And so there'd be legions of, of soldiers around. But this idea of legion, it says we, his name is legion for we are many. This guy isn't just possessed by one demon. He just doesn't have one unclean spirit, but a whole army of evil is living inside of this guy and is destroying him. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 10. It's a few pages back. If you're using a pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to use one of our pew Bibles. Uh, This is going to be on page 896. And I want us to see how what is going on and these demons are doing to this man, how this relates to something Jesus says uh, uh, in, in this passage. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says this. Jesus is teaching and he says, The thief, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And then we would, in the context, we would understand Jesus in this is ultimately talking about Satan. And what is the role of spiritual warfare? What is Satan seeking to do to steal, kill, and destroy? And there is now this army of Satan's, uh, those who, who are in the same camp as Satan, fallen. What are they doing? They're inside of this man. What are they doing? They've come to steal, kill, and destroy. This guy's life is being absolutely ruined by this demonic forces. We're going to come back to this passage in a few minutes, but I wanted us to see this idea that these fallen angels are accomplishing the purposes of Satan in this man. So, back to chapter 5. So, what happens next? So, Jesus says to the man, he's telling them to come out. He says, what is your name? And in Mark chapter 5, and they say, they begged him not to send them out into the country. They realize Jesus is the Son of the Most High. They also realize He has authority. He has authority to do with them whatever He wants. Listen, when we read in the Bible about Jesus and Satan and God and Satan, we must not think that it's this equal powers of good and evil at work in our world. It's not the case at all. We have a God who is controlling and created all things. And, and Satan and the demons, they don't, they don't, they're not conflicting with God. They submit to God. And as Jesus shows up on the scene, they know it. They, they, I mean, listen, there's a whole army of demons inside, and, and they're facing one Jesus. And they realize, we have no hope. And they say to Jesus, send us somewhere else. Don't send us out in the countryside. And they see this herd of pigs and they begged him in verse 12 saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. As Jesus gives them permission, what we're seeing is Jesus isn't going to let these demons continue to wreck this man's life. Jesus shows up, he sees this man's a mess and Jesus isn't going to let that continue. He wants to help this man. And so Jesus sends these demons into the pigs, and it says the unclean spirits came out of him in verse 13. They entered the pigs and the herd, and they numbered 2,000. They rushed down the steep bank, and they drowned in the sea. And think about this destruction, and Jesus allowed these demons to do to the pigs what he was not going to let them do to the man. And so we have 2,000 dead pigs floating in the sea. And a man now who is no longer possessed by these demons. Let's look a little further. Look what it says in verse 15. It describes the man after this. And he's now sitting there. 
which, which that's a significant idea. What? He's been a wild man running uncontrollably. Now what is he doing? He's sitting, sitting peacefully. It says he's sitting there. It says he's clothed. The other gospel writers tell us that this man that's running around doing all this stuff, that he's running around naked, right? I mean, that adds to the, I mean, you get off the boat and you see that coming. Now you're really freaked out, right? And now, but he's sitting and now he's clothed and he's not only sitting and clothed, he's in his right mind. And we see this incredible transformation just like that that God does for this man. And so we recognize that what these herdsmen then have gone off and they tell everybody what has happened and people come to see what is happening. So all these witnesses are now seeing this man whose chains have been set free from. We see this man, these pigs floating in the sea and we see this guy with a new life. And it says they're afraid. We'll come back to them being afraid in just a moment. But I want us to pause and to consider what are some of the things this passage teaches us about God. The first thing I want us to see is as we look at this, we realize Jesus cares. He really does. That Jesus cares. We see Jesus demonstrating his care by taking the initiative to come to this man. Jesus crossed the sea And it seems like he had a divine appointment with this man. That Jesus apparently knew this man was in a dire situation and he came to rescue him. And he cast out these demons and this man's life is now transformed. As we recognize this idea that Jesus came to this man, we also realize that Jesus takes the initiative to come to us. That we read in the Bible that Jesus is fully God who in eternity past lived the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and He clothed Himself with flesh, stepped out of heaven to come for us. He came to seek and save those who were lost, to seek and save those who didn't even know they were lost. He, came, he has come to set captives free. That is what Jesus has come to do. He has taken the initiative to do that. He has entered into our world to to teach truth, to live a sinless life, to surrender His life as a substitute for us, and then raise from the dead so that we too could be people who are restored to their right mind, who are seated and clothed, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And we see God demonstrating His care for us. We also see that not only does he care by taking initiative, he cares by meeting us in our mess. As this man, was a, his life was a train wreck. And Jesus wasn't like, no, no, listen, you cannot come to me until you get cleaned up a little bit. Listen, you need, I mean, you, you're bleeding, you've got these cuts, you're a mess, you've got to get cleaned up before you can come to me. It's not what we see in Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And I encourage, we need to understand that as we come to Jesus as an unbeliever approaching Jesus to realize that he will accept us just as we are in our mess. But also as believers, whenever we, we stumble, whenever we give in to temptation and we sin, that we realize that we don't have to clean ourselves up again before we come to Jesus. Because we can't. He's the only one who cleanses us. And he invites us to come to him in our mess. 
And then we see Jesus cares by taking initiative to come to us. He takes initiative by meeting us in our mess. And we also see that he works to deliver us from our distress. Listen, the beautiful thing, one of the many beautiful things about the gospel is that the gospel isn't just about Jesus coming and delivering us from our distress by taking us home to be with him, which that's one day he will do, but to deliver us from our distress in our mess, to, to give us peace and comfort and joy and satisfaction, even when the storms are still raging. That he loves us enough to, to come to us, to deliver us in our distress. That we see Jesus having power and authority over these storms that rage outside and inside of us. He has power over our destructive habits. He has power over our dominating sins. He has power over our foolish choices, our rebellious attitudes. Jesus has power over those things. And just like this man ran to Jesus, we must run to him. And we run to him just as we are that he meets us and he begins to deliver us. And the beautiful thing as well as he works to deliver us from our distress, we also see that he gives us new life. He gives us brand new life. And that's a transformation that he makes in us. It's what he's done for this man and, and so we see that Jesus does all of these things for us. And it's a beautiful picture of the new life God gives to us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old is gone. New has come. That's what Jesus does. That demonstrates his care. Now, back in John 10.10, 10, if, you, if you kept your place there, it says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. To have it abundance. That Jesus has come to set us free from our sin and not simply set us free from our sin and allow us to be miserable for the next bunch of years until we finally die and go to heaven. He's come to give us life now. An abundant life. A life of flourishing a life of joy and peace and delight, not a life that's free of, of storms. He doesn't tell us that coming to Him gives us a, a storm-free life. But He's with us in all of our storms. That is the beauty of this God. He wants our lives to flourish, to be full, to be abundant. And, and I would simply ask you the question, are you, have you tasted that? Have you tasted that abundant goodness of God and the new life that he's offered to you. See, one of the things I'm often burdened with is that people come to Jesus because they just want all the things Jesus wants to give us. We often talk about our, the why illustration that we use a lot, that doing things God's way makes life brighter. And it does. Doing things God's way makes things brighter. But I'm also burdened that oftentimes what we're pursuing is just a brighter day and not really pursuing Jesus. You see, we sometimes are just getting, we want the brighter day because we're still pursuing our own self. And Jesus is calling us to surrender everything that he cares for us, then as we care for him, we realize that he is worthy of our worship and that we surrender and submit our lives to him transformation of the gospel 
transformation from living for me to living for him. And as he does that, it demonstrates his care for us. Well, let's continue back in our passage. As the, Jesus has healed this man, as he works in him, the passage in verse 15 ends by saying that the people were afraid. It's interesting because we weren't told they were afraid before. They've got this lunatic, this guy, demon-possessed man, cutting himself, supernatural powers, and running all over the place, living in the tombs. But it, it never tells us they were afraid. They probably were, but our text doesn't tell us that. And I think the point of that is to tell us, what are they really afraid of? They're really afraid of the transformed life and the power that created that. That's what they're really afraid of. And we see that Jesus creates this fear. They want Jesus to go away, because look what it says in verse 16. And those who, descri- those who had seen it described to him what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why would they want Jesus to leave? I believe they wanted Jesus to leave because the presence of Jesus is interfering with their lives. Listen, it was kind of messy before with having that guy running around, but we're kind of doing our thing. We're raising these pigs. I mean, sure, this, it, it, sure it's great this guy's better, but there are 2,000 pigs dead. Do you realize the cost of that to the farmers? Do you realize what that could do to our local economy? And we have this Jesus creating those kind of problems. We don't want those kind of problems. We'll deal with this crazy guy, but we don't want to have to deal with the problems that Jesus is going to create. And it creates a fear. And I believe there's that this fear of God, that we see this fear, and I think we see it in our culture oftentimes, a pushing back. We don't want Jesus. We don't want Jesus, and which is very interesting in a world that is just out of control and chaos and thinking, we don't want you telling our kids about Jesus in the schools, for instance. Okay, why? Because we don't want them to love their neighbor as they love themselves. Because we don't want them to not steal. We don't want them to not lie. What is it about Jesus that's so threatening? Right? And we recognize, what is it? It's the gospel. We don't want Jesus, and it creates a fear. And we see this fear, and we see this, saw this earlier in our Matthew, our Mark chapter 4 passage, when the storm had come, and then Jesus settled the storm, and the disciples were afraid when the storm came. What we see in this is this, is that the work of Jesus creates fear. There are two kinds of fear. One kind of fear is a fear that will call us to push away from Jesus. I don't want what he has. Another kind of fear draws us near. Here's what we mean by that. The fear that pushes Jesus away believes that his presence is scary and harmful. That having Jesus near is scary because there's uncertainty. I don't know what I think about that, but it's also harmful. It's harmful because the presence of Jesus means I don't get to be in charge anymore. The presence of Jesus means that there is a threat to my autonomy and me being in charge. The presence of Jesus means now that I need to live a way differently than I want to live. The presence of Jesus means that there is a new ethic and a new order that's going to be followed, and I don't want to do that. 
And there's this fear then because of that. I don't want Jesus. I, want, I, mean, I just want maybe a little bit of Jesus, but I don't want all of him because I don't want him to interfere. But the other kind of fear is this, is a fear that draws near to Jesus because it believes that the presence of Jesus is awesome. I mean, it's big and it's trembling and there's some, some trembling associated with it. But like the disciples knew that Jesus is good. His presence is good for me. I may love me, but he loves me better. So I want him close. And yet sometimes we recognize the craziness of our own lives and the destruction that goes on. And oftentimes, rather than submitting ourselves to Jesus, I don't want Jesus. I prefer my craziness and this insane lifestyle and this chaos to a God who's going to interfere with my life. Because when we come to Jesus, we, need to live, we are called to live on His terms, to live according to His purposes, to live according to His rules, to love Him first and most, to recognize that He is good, that He is great, that He is delightful, that He is incredible, and all of our lives are going to be lived for Him no matter what the cost. But oftentimes we're afraid of the cost and we withdraw. But, and that's what we see happen in these townspeople. But look at the contrast. Look at our text to see what it says in verse 18. So this man who has been healed, it says in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. This guy wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. As we recognize this, that Jesus is not letting this man come. And we questioned, well, why wouldn't Jesus let this guy come? I believe it's probably this guy's a Gentile. Him getting in the boat with a bunch of Jews going back over to the Jewish side of the sea, that was going to create all kinds of problems for what the ministry was going to unfold. But also because Jesus wants people over here, these Gentiles, to know all about him. And who, what better witness than this guy whose life he's just transformed to go and to tell. This guy is no longer, listen, this guy's no longer a threat or a burden to this community. He's going to go home and his family's going to be restored. He's going to be able to get a job. He's going to be able to help others. He's going to be able to impact the community in very positive ways now. And we see the transformation of the gospel produces that. And so Jesus says, go back. Tell people how much you've done, how much Jesus has done, and had mercy on him. And what we see in this, what do we learn from this? We recognize Jesus cares. We recognize that Jesus creates fear. We also see that Jesus sends us. He sent this man as a witness, which is very interesting. He didn't tell this man, hey, go show them how different you are. He said, go tell them. Now, there are clearly things they were, people would be able to see, right? I mean, they're going to see this is the same guy and something changed has happened. But he tells them to go and tell. And it says that there are two specific things. Look in verse 19 with me closely. 
Go to your friends and tell them, the first thing, how much the Lord has done for you. That would be his testimony. This is what God's done for me. God's changed my life. I'm wearing clothes now. I didn't used to wear clothes. See these scars? They're all healed up. These scars are healed up because Jesus has healed me. What else has he done for me? I mean, the fact that I don't have chains on my hands anymore. Jesus has done all of these things for me. My life is different now because of Jesus. He says, go tell them that. And how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I think this is what else they're supposed to say. That not only is this is what Jesus has done for me, okay, but also what mercy he has shown that he didn't have to do this. He came in his grace to change me. And I think that's the gospel. And so what we learn from this is that you and I, we, if you know Jesus, if you have met Jesus, if he has met you in your distress, if he'd freed you in your mess, as you know him and are trusting him, there are things about your life that are different. Let others know that. Let others know that you're living in a different way and, and, and why. But then not only do we have the opportunity to share the, God, the, the testimony about how he has brought peace and how he has helped me in my battles with, my, my, with whether it's lust or loneliness or grief or sorrow or anger, to be able to say, man, it's been hard, but my Lord has been good to me. Share that. But then we also not only have an opportunity with our testimony, we have a responsibility to share the gospel. A responsibility to tell others about the mercy God has shown us. That we are rebels against a holy God who don't deserve his kindness and goodness, but in his love he has clothed himself with flesh, come to live among us, die on the cross, raise from the dead, and give new life to all who will believe. That's the good news of Jesus. And listen, you and I, that's our job. That's our responsibility to go and to tell. And I want to encourage you, in your bulletin, I put there's an orange card in your bulletin. And on the front side of it, what does it say? The gospel. Okay? On the back side of it is a gospel outline. Now, we put these in your bulletin so for you to tuck in your Bible, but also for you to, to be, make sure that you know the gospel well. What is this good news? How has God shown you mercy? This is it. These six questions. Who is God? Who am I? What should God do to me? What has he done instead? Um, how must I respond? What difference does it make? I would encourage you, learn that outline. So whenever you're talking to somebody, you know what to share when you're talking to them about the gospel. I would encourage you to use this as well, to tuck it in your Bible. You're meeting with somebody uh, over coffee to talk about some of the struggles in their life, to pull it out and to be able to say, can I share with you some big picture good news? And you use it as an outline, a tool to help, you, help somebody else to know the gospel. It's a tool for us to fulfill this responsibility that we have to sharing the gospel. And we realize in the midst of all this, what? Jesus is good. That the encountering Jesus does create fear. A fear that's going to push us away or draw us near. And we also recognize that Jesus then sends us as witnesses. And what this means is that if you're a believer, we've got work to do. If you're still trying to wrestle through this and sort this out, we would love to be able to help you with this, to talk a little more about this. If you're, if you're thinking about these 
inner demons and this inner storm that's going on inside of you, I want to encourage you, you don't have to do that alone. You don't have to weather this storm alone. We want to help. I want to help. Call us. Talk to a trusted friend that will give you good biblical counsel. Oh, the last thing Jesus wants you to do is to endure the storm by yourself. Get help. But we're going to conclude here in just a moment. As we conclude, then we're going to sing a song that challenges us in the responsibility that we have. And so let us look to the Lord, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. You come to us. You draw near to us. When we are undeserving, Lord, you love us. And God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that truly understanding who you are creates a fear, a, a trembling at your awesome. But I pray fear that we would experience would not be a fear that would push us away, but would draw us near to you. And God, I pray that we would fulfill the responsibility that you've given to us to be witnesses, to go, and to let others know the good things you have done for us and to know the mercy that you have shown us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.